Heavenly Father, uh, what a joyous season, Father. You gave the nation of Israel seven opportunities throughout the year to celebrate formal ceremonies and, and feasts, Father, that remember the work of your redemption through Christ. And they celebrated those in some cases with little understanding and And in other cases, Father, with a full understanding of where you were going in your plan, we can look back on them, Father, with with great understanding from your word. And in the meantime, we have our own feasts and festivals, annual celebrations. And, Father, ours are centered on Christ, as they should be. And this one, Father, perhaps a favorite of many, family time and holidays off from work and a chance to remember all the many blessings of our year. And, Father, I thank you that you've given us this season. Even if the world chooses to use it in ways that are not honoring to you, Father, that is nothing new. Not for you. But, Father, we will honor it for what it means. We thank you for your son and for his arrival as man so that he can take our place on a cross for things he did not deserve. And, Lord, thank you for the word that reminds us of the need for these things, of the sin of men and ours with it, of the mercy you offer to those who had no hope apart from Christ. And, These things, Father, make the meaning of Christmas so much more special for us. We ask, Lord, that you would always keep our mind on those things, even as we run around and do the things that the world does as well. Lord, let our teaching tonight, uh, let this teaching tonight reach our hearts in a way that can only come from your word. Let it remind us, Father, of of Christ in the face of David. And let us uh, understand, Lord, that you were planning to bring somebody uh, to save us from our sin even before we understood we needed it. Thank you, Father, for that grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Time for a little celebration tonight. We've reached the halfway point in this book. We've uh, reached chapter 16. There's 30 chapters in the book of Samuel. So welcome to the second half of your study of the book of Samuel. And it's appropriate as we move into the second part that we take a minute to understand the two parts and how they work together because they're different. The first half of our study has been focused on the nation of Israel and their rebellious state of heart. Their propensity to follow after idols, if you remember. Their failure to hear and to heed the Lord's word through Samuel. Their fleshly desire for a king who would defend them from their enemies, even though the Lord was already prepared to do that for them. And how they rejected the Lord's rule in favor of a man who suited their own desires. But the Lord never stopped ruling his people, even though they were off doing things their own way. He was to rule through a king no different than he ruled through judges before that. But the king these people picked has some serious handicaps. And in general, we said kings have handicaps that judges, as a general rule, do not have. For example, kings can't hear directly from the Lord. The Lord only chose to reveal his word through prophets after the kings came along. Secondly, the king could be easily tempted by the unrivaled power that he had among men, and so that would be an opportunity for absolute power to corrupt absolutely, leading them into temptation and pride and arrogance and the like. And lastly, when a king falls, the people tend to fall with them. All of these things mark the first half of the book, the the understanding that God was still ruling, but the people were not listening, and their chosen ruler was someone who would bring them down. And as the first half ended, we saw the king of Israel, Saul, rejected, fallen before the Lord, victim to exactly the temptations that Samuel warned the nation would happen if they sought a king in their own way. So the Lord disqualified Samuel's family from continuing in the dynasty. Later, he rejected Saul personally as king. And that means that it is eventually God has to anoint someone in his place. And that brings us to the second half of the book. The second half of the story is the rise of David 
as the next king. So the first half is the fall of Saul. The second half is the rise of David. And Saul isn't altogether gone yet, so really the second half of the book is maybe better titled David and Saul, because there's still this period in which David, even as he's rising, is dealing with a Saul who's not yet left the throne. And in that sense, the story becomes one of David defending himself against the king who feels the threat of his successor. But even above all of these storylines, there's a main idea that runs through both First and Second Samuel, actually all the way into the book of Kings, both books of Kings, and that is the Lord's sovereignty in raising up leaders. Because after all, kings come and go according to the Lord's purposes, but those men live to serve the Lord in what the Lord has planned. And both the good of these kings and later the bad of kings, including the bad kings of the northern kingdom, they all serve a purpose in God's plan. So even as we're striving to understand the lives of each man, We need to also understand that everything is taking place according to a plan God has written from the beginning. And as we enter into chapter 16, we're looking at Saul now having ruled about 25 years of the 40 that he's going to spend on the throne in total. That means he has about 15 years left. And yet he's been rejected by the Lord. Or that's what we heard last chapter, last week. And therefore, Saul's time on the throne is now merely a period of waiting for God's convenience for what God needs to see happen first. And that convenience is so that the Lord can prepare the heart and the strength of Israel's next king, that is David. Meanwhile, though, you've got Saul now. What are you going to do with Saul? And God is going to spend time weakening Saul and allowing his wandering heart to take that man deeper into the destruction that he wrote for himself in his own rebellion. And as long as he lives now, through the rest of his reign uh, on, on the throne... He is the Lord's anointed, and that's something we don't want to lose sight of. The Lord did not reverse what had already happened. There's only some things that could be changed, and others could not. Scripture says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So what God has done in anointing Saul as king cannot be undone, so to speak, but God can reject him, and the rejection of God means the favor of God leaves Saul, and the favor of God rests on someone else, so that now Saul is frustrated in his efforts, even as another is empowered in their efforts, but that doesn't change their status. Saul is the anointed king of Israel until he dies. So the Lord is preparing to anoint another, yet the first remains in power. And of course, anytime you have two men who have claim to the throne, you can't have peace under those circumstances. That leads to the 15 years we're going to see now in the next 15 chapters of First Samuel. All right, with that background, let's dive right in. This is the chapter that introduces David. Chapter 16, verses 1 through 5 will start. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? He said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. I want you to take a look at your chapter from top to bottom here for just a moment. It's framed as two parts in itself. 
And you can see it through the language that's used in the text. These are inclusios. That's the term in literature for when you frame a thought through language that makes clear that there are bookends within the text. And in this case, notice verses 1 and verse 13. Verse 1 and verse 13. They both mention a horn of oil. And then notice on the other side of that, verses 14 and then again verse 23. So 14 and 23. You notice they both mention the departing of the Spirit of God. Those are inclusios. So they indicate that the chapter has really two ideas going on in this chapter. The first of those ideas is in the first half, the second is in the second half. So these are the markers that anchor the beginning and the end of the two parts. The first part of the chapter emphasizes the rise of David into success and into adoration, while the second part emphasizes the beginning of Saul's slide into madness and torment. So in verse 1, let's look at the text. Verse 1, we find Samuel having, let's just call it a pity party, We're told he's grieving because the Lord has rejected Saul. Well, that just raises the question, why is Samuel so distraught over this? I mean, he he sees the whole thing for what it is. I would tell you that it's probably because he's worried for what this change means for him. Because when the time comes to anoint the next king, Samuel's going to be committing an act of treason against Saul, from Saul's point of view. So his concern, I think, at least in part, is for his own skin. And you can see that reflected in his response to the Lord. The Lord asked Samuel, how long are you going to sit there when you know I've rejected Saul? It's time to go to the family of Jesse. It's time to anoint one of his sons. And I think Samuel's answer confirms that he's worried about going through with that plan. He says, if the people ask why I've come to them, they're going to learn I've arrived to anoint Saul's successor. And that word's going to get back to Saul and he's going to kill me. And very likely he would have done that. So the Lord gives Samuel this fascinating answer. He tells Samuel, well, then in that case, just take a female cow, heifer, tell the people that you've come to sacrifice to the Lord, and you'll be fine. And, you know, at first, that sounds like that the Lord's giving Samuel a story that's intended to deceive, doesn't it? Is it possible the Lord's asking Samuel to lie, basically, to come up with a little false story to cover his tracks? Well, in case you're struggling to find the answer, let me help you. No. Notice the Lord says Samuel will, in fact, conduct a sacrifice. There's no lie in that. It's actually what's going to happen. Moreover, he's going to invite Jesse, the man that we know he has to go find, the man living in Bethlehem, and his sons to come and attend the sacrifice. And then he says, in the course of all of that, then I'll give you the rest of the plan when the time comes. So the Lord has simply told him to go to Bethlehem to sacrifice. That is all he knows, at least in the details of it. So if anyone asks why you're here, he's given him exactly the right answer. There's no deception here. It's just that he has not been given the full details so that he can be honest in his reply. As Samuel does go and enter the city, you notice the elders of the city of Bethlehem, they come out to greet him, which is a way of saying they come out to stop him. And they're stopping him because his reputation has preceded him into this small town. He has been a man now for several decades who has delivered the word of God with great authority. He's anointed the king for the nation. And more recently, he has killed the king of Ammon. You remember? With his own hand, hacking him to death. So Samuel's the kind of guy that gets a lot of attention when he arrives. And I think the killing of Agag has apparently given Samuel the reputation of a warrior or executioner. And so they ask him, are you coming in peace? Is that a sword we see underneath that robe? They probably frisked him. And he says, no, I I came in peace. He says, I've come to sacrifice and I ask that the men of the city consecrate themselves and that specifically Jesse and his sons do this. Consecrate just means to set aside for holy purpose. And so that's a way of saying to separate them out, to come to the sacrifice and separate yourself from the, the women, from the rest of the city, come out and participate in the sacrifice. And when Samuel says, I've come here to sacrifice, you go out and you sacrifice with Samuel. So they go, verse 6, When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, The Lord's not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Now, at this point, obviously, Samuel's revealed something to Jesse's family about his purpose because he's lined them up and he's inspecting them in this way. Probably after the sacrifice, it says they've entered, so it's probably at a tent in which Samuel has now taken some accommodation. And so, Jesse, proudly, being dad, of course, he just parades each of his sons before Samuel for the anointing, hoping or not knowing which one of these is going to be selected by Samuel. And naturally, he just begins with the firstborn because it's the normal logical place you start in a patriarchal culture. Older was always preferred over a younger in that culture. And so he begins that way. And it's evident from what Samuel says that Samuel also expected this process. He is also a victim of this cultural bias. He takes one look at the first guy and he concludes, this must be the guy. Which would tell us this guy probably looked a little similar to Saul as a young man. Right? Tall, handsome, strong. The, the Lord even mentions heights, for example, here as one of his attributes. So he must have been another of those poster children for king candidates. You know, he just, you take a look at this guy and you go, yeah, he's the guy. But now you see the Lord opposing the course of men driven by their flesh. The Lord is not about to select the guy that looks the part here again, at least not in all respects. He's not, he doesn't need a, a warrior that fits the part externally, at least in the way men see men. And it would have been spiritually damaging, in fact, if God had reinforced this faulty notion that external appearance is a good measure of godliness. So he can't afford to do that, not as a general rule. Because men do not have the insight of the character of a person. We often choose the bad person. Because even if a person has bad character, our culture likes to celebrate bad boys as if they're a little tougher, especially if they have movie star good looks. Those two are, are just a killer combination, aren't they? Bad boy, attitude, good guy looks, you know, that goes a long way in our culture. And the Lord's not going to reinforce that because it has nothing to say about the character and the godliness of a person. So the Lord is going to pass over all these sons. And I should add, not because they've done anything necessarily egregiously wrong. It's not like they disqualified themselves because they did something wrong as a 10-year-old. Uh, they may not have been any worse or better than your average Jewish boy in these days. The point is, their heart had not been prepared by God for the role God had for this king. In other words, God has not been working to prepare their hearts. So they don't know, and they don't follow him in the way God expects, but there is one who has. There is one boy in this family that God has been working since infancy, Scripture says, in preparing the heart of this one to be the man God needed him to be. It won't be the oldest son. It won't even be the next oldest in fact, as Samuel proceeds through the seven, none of them are the one that God has been working with. And interestingly, the number seven certainly tells us that this is a process that is falling under God's providence. He's obviously at work in this. But Samuel sees only these seven. And so after he's run this course with all these seven, he's totally perplexed at this point by the outcome. The Lord has sent him here to anoint a son. He's gone through all the sons, or so he thinks. And now none of them have been chosen. So he's trying to figure out in his head, where did I go wrong? This is the right place. Your name's Jesse, right? This is Jesse. Okay, Bethlehem, yeah. I walked in. You gave me seven, none of them. The next thing he asks in verse 11, 
Samuel said to Jesse, Are these all the children? And Jesse said, There remains yet the youngest. Behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Well, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes, and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So Samuel asked Jesse the obvious question, as I said, Do you have any more sons? At this point, Jesse says, almost like it's an afterthought, Oh, well, yeah, there is the youngest. Yeah, he's out with the sheep. And this is typical, by the way. Children were usually the ones who were assigned the role of tending to the sheep in the pasture because that's work that didn't require a lot of strength or maturity. If you needed boys to do work around the farm or around the ranch, you know, that was the easy job. So you gave it to the youngest kids. And it was a fairly demeaning role, so you wouldn't want the job if you were over a certain age. It's like child's work. So boys as young as 10 or 12 might be found with the sheep all day in the pasture and even into the night and watching them all night until the morning. And David, as the youngest child, has been assigned this role. And as a shepherd and the youngest, he actually fits two common biblical themes really well. God is commonly seen in the scriptures selecting men who are the opposite of those that the world would select. And in the days of the patriarchs, for example, you see him routinely selecting the younger son of two when the question was, who was going to receive the inheritance and the seed promise? You know, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, and so on. God's purpose was always to draw this distinction between the natural way and the redemption way, the way God was working. So you can see that contrast in Scripture many, many ways, but in the way he selects men, there is a very common thread. The natural way of man, in all respects, is sin, rebellion, death, built on the flesh. And in the natural way of men, we prefer the older. The older is superior. The older son is given preference over the younger. In fact, notice that when Samuel told Jesse to go get his sons and bring them to be consecrated for the sacrifice, Jesse didn't even get his youngest son. He just completely decided that one didn't matter. That's how little the youngest mattered. So to Jesse, David wasn't even a consideration for being anointed as king. Similar to the way Abraham disagreed with the Lord when the Lord said it would be Isaac, not Ishmael, and Abraham replied, oh, may Ishmael live before you. You know, It never occurred to Abraham that it was going to be Isaac. By contrast, the mercy of God brings redemption, hope, and life to those who are least likely to expect it. So as Paul taught, the Lord uses the weak things to shame the wise. So he, the Lord, seeks to raise up the younger in many cases, including here, only so as to make clear he is in control and he is working to reverse the natural course. And so it's not that the younger is preferable in some spiritual sense, it's just to negate the natural to go against what the world thinks is correct, to point out that the Lord is working contrary to the world's ways in all regard. And he's doing it here again with David. Secondly, seeing that David is a shepherd from the very beginning plays into the theme of shepherding in Scripture. That's a theme that represents the loving care of God's people. Shepherds are those who spend time with the sheep. You probably heard it said that a, a good shepherd smells like the sheep. They spend a lot of time with the people. And as Scripture talks at other points in time, they feed the sheep, they keep the sheep from wandering, they defend the sheep. So God's people are to be cared for in all of those respects by a shepherd who has their best interests at heart. And that's why Jesus himself is called the Good Shepherd in John's Gospel. So here you see Jesse's youngest son, a shepherd, being called as the next king. And in that way, he becomes a clear type of Christ. 
throughout the second half of this book, time and time again, we are going to see pictures of Christ reflected in David's life, intentionally so. I'd say David is right up there with Joseph in the Bible for how often and how clearly Christ is pictured in his life in so many instances, in so many details, big and small. For example, we've already seen that David comes from Bethlehem, which is the city of David, obviously, the city where Jesus will be born. By the way, they share the same town because the seed line of Messiah passes through David. So that's the ancestral home of Jesus' family. And we already said David, like Jesus, is a shepherd of his people. So as David enters the room, he's not what Samuel was expecting. He's not an unattractive young man. He's probably around the age of 15 or so, maybe even a little younger. But he's not old enough, not seasoned enough to be even close to be considered for the role of king, much less to assume the throne at this point. So as he walks in, you think Samuel must be wondering, how did the Lord intend to use a boy like this in the role of king? And when the Lord indicates, this is my man, well, Samuel does what he's supposed to do. He gets up, he anoints David right then and there before his brothers, which would imagine to be a very dramatic moment, especially for the brothers. And with that, we see the coming of the Spirit upon David for the rest of David's life. And we remember that the start of Christ's public ministry also was accompanied by the arrival of the Spirit for the rest of his earthly life. And in both cases, it represented the start of time of service for these men, Christ and David, in their respective ministries. David is the most important biblical character in the Bible after Christ himself. More is said about David in the Bible than any other human being apart from Christ. He is the subject, the sole subject, of 66 chapters of the Old Testament. He is mentioned 59 more times in the New Testament to say nothing of his authorship of 85 of the Psalms. David's name means roughly beloved of the Lord, and he will be called a man after God's own heart in Scripture. Chuck Swindoll described what it means that a man is after God's own heart in this way. He says, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? seems to me it means that you are a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says go to the right, you go to the right. When he says stop that, stop that in your life, you stop it. It doesn't mean you never sin. It's very easy to sum up being a good follower of God by saying you don't make mistakes. But that's not realistic and that's not genuine. It has more to do with how your heart is affected, whether for the better or for the worse. It's not that you are without sin, it's just that you grieve your own sin as much as God does. We know David will sin greatly, but we know that he has a heart that is touched by his own sin and willingly accepts the Lord's retribution when the time came. So it means having a heart that mourns over your own sin as much as the Lord does when it occurs. And we mentioned already he's a prime author in the book of Psalms. So one of the other things we'll do as we cover David in the second half of this book is we'll take time here and there to read a few of his Psalms that relate specifically to the events that are recorded in this book about his own life. We've already talked about the fact that David is a man with a heart that mourns for sin as much as God did. That's best reflected in the Psalm that he wrote after he was caught with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. 
Behold, you desired truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So that's the kind of man God has raised up to follow Saul, which is a direct contrast to the kind of heart that Saul is displaying in his current life. Earlier I said that the Lord has prepared this heart from the beginning, from the very start of David's life. And by that I mean David, according to his own words, was marked out from the womb to know and then to follow the Lord obediently, which is another picture of Christ, I would add. And in the psalm, David describes his own beginning this way, Psalm 22 He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue you because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Now clearly Psalm 22 is messianic as well. But it's not less about David just because it's also about Christ. So like Jesus, David was made to trust the Lord while upon his mother's breast. He was cast from birth upon the Lord, similar to John the Baptist, who received the Holy Spirit in the womb. Proof to any mother that Christ's ability to reach the heart of a human being is not dependent on their age. It's not a matter of them becoming old enough to know and accept. It's about God, by his Spirit, granting them faith at a given point in time, whether as an infant or later. And so David's preparation for service to the Lord began long before the moment that we see him called here at the age of 15. And now at the midpoint of this chapter, we finish the first half. The inclusio has come to a completion in the first case. Now we see the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David. And of course, if the Spirit has come upon David for service to the Lord, then what about the Spirit who's been resting on Saul all this time? Now the Spirit could be in more than one place at a time. We all know that. But in this case, he's moving from one to the other. And in his place, in the Spirit's place for Saul, comes something very different. So the next half of the chapter, verse 14. Now, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So we're going to stop there because this one verse raises a couple of very interesting questions. First, the Lord removing the spirit from Saul. The Lord has rejected Saul. We know that. He's rejected him because he has a sinful, rebellious heart. Not because he's sinful, period, but because he's sinful and rebellious. And because his heart is directed at all that he can gain personally out of serving as king. Not for what he can do for the Lord in serving as king. He wasn't willing to serve the Lord by allowing the Lord to rule through him. 
Instead, he was only there to serve himself. So now, the Lord has anointed a successor, given his spirit to that successor, and pulled his spirit from Saul. And remember, we said this when we saw the spirit arrive in the first case, that the coming or the going, in this case, of the spirit, in the Old Testament time, is not unprecedented, nor does it say anything about the person's own state before God. In other words, their salvation, we would say today. Saul has not, quote, lost his salvation because the spirit has departed. In this time of God's economy, the spirit is not the marker of salvation as he is for us today in the New Testament church. He came as God determined for a time and for a purpose to empower for some ministry or service. And if that time came to its conclusion, or in this case, a person was disqualified, then the spirit could depart. It simply means that man is no longer empowered by God. He no longer can work with the supernatural wisdom and favor of God in the tasks he's been given. He has only his flesh to depend on at this point. And the Lord can still work through him. In fact, the Lord will still work through Saul at times. But the person himself, Saul in this case, does not have divine enablement for that work. So that's the first thing to know. But the even more interesting part, of course, is in the second half of verse 14, where we're told that the Lord sends an evil spirit to Saul. And so many things about this statement are intriguing to me. First, the idea that God uses the demonic world for his purposes never fails to fascinate me. Because we know the Lord put Satan to use at various times in history from, from other examples you can think of, like in the garden. God used him to tempt the woman and to bring the man into sin. He uses Satan in Job's life. He uses Satan in Judas's actions to bring Jesus to the cross. So we know the Lord is not above using the evil one to do what he wishes, and it happens from time to time. Here you see him using demons, that is, the, the rest of the demonic realm, uh, a member of that realm, to specifically torment a person as designated, Saul. But the question is, how does this actually happen? Because we know demons do not desire to do God's bidding since they rebelled in the first place. Their goal is to oppose God, not to do what God wants. What does rebellion mean, though, if a demon can be sent to do God's will and then seem to do it gladly to accomplish the mission? Well, the best I can conclude is that demons must act in predictable ways. They desire to destroy God's work. They seek to undermine his people. And they never vary in their desire to complete that objective. And therefore, when given a chance to torment a child of God, like Saul, they're going to relish the opportunity and seize upon it every time. They are utterly predictable then in that regard. And therefore, the Lord can employ them when their evil desires suit his divinely good purposes. So they're a tool in the toolbox that acts predictably. He can put them to work when he needs to. It does not require, though, that the demons know what they're doing in terms of God's purpose. The demons must be blind to how their actions support the Lord's will in what they do. Otherwise, why would Satan have ever put Jesus to death on the cross if he could have anticipated what it would mean for his own future, right? Or why would he have played into God's hand with Job, for example? Demons are not omniscient. They can't see the future. They can only be enticed to act according to their own desires, and God entices and uses and directs, and they go after what they think is best for themselves, which is, by the way, what sinful flesh does everywhere. They're being directed by God, this one demon, against Saul, they're taking advantage of the opportunity because they view it as part of their own mission, but God's turning it to good in a different way. But then we get to the heart of the question, why did the Lord feel it was necessary to bring an evil spirit to torment Saul in the first place? Wasn't taking his own spirit away enough in this case? Well, taking his own spirit away would have been sufficient, but it didn't suit God's purposes in raising Saul up in the first place. And that's the key to understanding what's going on here. You have to go back to why Saul was ever allowed to be king at all. Because remember, Saul's from the wrong tribe. 
He isn't the right guy for the job. He's not the one God would have wanted. He's the one men wanted. So when the Lord allowed Saul to be king in the first place, we knew it couldn't last. There had to be some purpose in God allowing Saul to come to the throne that was not for the purpose of truly allowing him to be a king forever or for Israel to have kings from the tribe of Benjamin. Nevertheless, the Lord raised him up. And there's two reasons why he did. The only reason Saul has been raised up to serve is so that he can be a negative example to Israel and to all history. His ignominious end will forever testify of what happens when flesh tries to rule instead of spirit, when love of self exceeds love for the Lord, when the outward man takes precedence over the inner man. So Saul is that negative example for us in that regard. And that's why the last 15 years of Saul's reign existed all. The Lord is intending to exhibit Saul during those 15 years as a failure. The evil spirit is there then, therefore, to provoke and tempt Saul's flesh so that we can expose the worst in Saul so that this point, this lesson that's being made, can't be missed. So that it's fully exposed. So that God wrings out every bit of the testimony of Saul's heart from these last days. So that Saul's deteriorating life in the last 15 years becomes a a really strong testimony to the world. Secondly, we have David. And this king after God's heart, the one that the Lord approves and loves, is someone that needs to be disciplined and prepared for this role that God has for him. Remember, it says that God loved David because he was a man after David's own heart. And if God loves somebody, he reproves them. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12:5, Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Later in that chapter, chapter 12, the writer goes on, verse 10, For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he, the Lord, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Isn't it interesting that when you're in the middle of the discipline process, you don't find room for much joy. You find room for great sorrow, hence the Psalms. But after it, you're trained up in righteousness. And the Lord loving David will bring David trials that discipline him. Discipline that prepares him to share in the Lord's holiness. And the David we know from Second Samuel, and the Psalms for that matter, is the David that God molded in adversity over 15 years under Saul's persecution. And the source of that adversity is Saul. Saul is tormented by an evil spirit. And the effect of that evil spirit is it makes Saul increasingly prone to bouts of paranoia and rage against David. And then he pursues David. And the pursuit of David is a great test to David's heart. It's testing not only his stamina and his resourcefulness, but his patience and his willingness to show respect for the anointed of God, even as that man tries to kill him. It gives him a great sense of what it feels like to be under a merciless tyrant and what it must feel like under those circumstances. So for ten years it takes, ten years of time, David is seasoned in this way, as God intended. And the evil spirit is a catalyst for how this takes place. So David's life is a wonderful reminder in general that the bad things in our lives are all God-directed, all intended to mold us into someone better. And although we may not understand how the two are connected in the moment, it's often the case, we can't make sense of why the bad thing is happening as it happens. You can be sure, nonetheless, that nothing you're experiencing is outside his control or intended to harm us. And therefore, it's up to us to ask the question, 
Are we taking advantage of the challenges and the tests by turning them into the benefit God intended? Or, alternatively, do we shrink back and have the pity party or, or in some cases, find a way to escape our trial or test so that we never have to learn the lesson that God intended in the first place? And right away, we're going to see how the Lord begins to use the evil spirit to accomplish both of the things I just outlined here. To show both Saul's deterioration and also to show this lowly shepherd boy an opportunity to associate with the king that he will one day replace. Verse 15. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, Behold, I have seen the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. So it starts very interestingly, verse 15, Saul has already been given the evil spirit, we're told. And as a result of the affliction, it causes his servants to take note. And you wonder what they saw. You wonder what it was that gave them this understanding. I wonder, in fact, if we don't see all of this in our day today and just don't realize it. Except we attribute strange behavior to other causes. Never stopping to consider whether the behavior is the result of demonic influence or not. We need to leave room for that in our personal theology. By the way, leave room for supernatural explanations, things that you may confront that are inexplicable and border on evil behavior. Consider where the source may be. And recognize again, Saul is a believer, and yet God brought this evil spirit. So it's possible for the demonic world to influence the thinking and the behavior of a believer who is living in the flesh. According to the New Testament, it's not possible for a believer to be indwelled or possessed by a demon, but there's still a great potential for evil spirits to act on our thoughts and our emotions and, and our circumstances without rising to the level of possession. And it's particularly going to be a, the case that someone who's not walking closely with the Lord, with the Spirit, may see this kind of thing because God's using it to catch their attention and discipline them. We don't know his motives in all cases, whether it's for their destruction or their good, but in any case, it's, it's for good purpose. It's for good outcomes. In this day and age, this time of history, any strange behavior was attributed almost universally to one of two causes, alcohol or demonic possession. That's what they would say about Jesus, right? He's been drinking or he has a demon. Some kind of influence on your body that could make you act in strange ways, those were the two logical explanations that they had. And even if they could have identified some other biological source like we would try to do today in medicine, they would just have jumped past that and assumed that the condition itself was the product of a spiritual agent. So in many ways, the thinking of people in these days is actually closer to the truth than our own enlightened scientific views today. As Paul said, we don't war against flesh and blood, but rather against spiritual forces. And that war, friends, includes the war with our own bodies. It's not just about the war that's going on between people. It's within ourselves as well. The source of many mental, emotional, and even physical ailments may be spiritual forces working to weaken us. And therefore, we need to consider the need for spiritual solutions for spiritual problems. And in this case, they diagnose it as demons correctly, which is what the Lord intended. In fact, they go the next step, which again shows you the attitude of thought in the culture. They don't just say you have an evil demon. Notice what they said. They said in verse 16 that God has sent it to you. 
They recognize here again that the world is filled with spiritual forces at war and nothing happens that God doesn't allow. So if God's anointed is acting wacko and he hadn't been drinking, then he has a demon. Sounds like a Monty Python sketch, right? (laughs) If it's a witch and it's made of wood and it floats. If you don't know the movie. He says, if you're acting wacky, you must have a demon. If you have a demon, well, it's got to be because God brought it to you. So now we have to figure out what it is we can do to help you in light of what God is appearing to do to you. It's a very simple way of thought that's actually very closely modeled in Scripture. And in this case, after diagnosing it, they begin to offer a suggestion. And in this case, what you see now happen is that the presence of the evil spirit sets in motion a series of circumstances that ultimately bring David and Saul together in the court of the king which is what God intended. He needs them to meet so that David can be prepared by this relationship to become the king that will replace Saul in a future day. And he's going to use the tension between these two men to do that. So you see how the spirit, this evil spirit, fits perfectly into that. No evil spirit, no need to call for a guy who can play harp. The whole thing lines up. So Saul's having these fits of what I imagine must be terror, and he's got this deteriorating mental state as a result, and it leads his servants to say, we've got to do something for our king. And they propose to call for a skillful musician to soothe Saul. I assume this idea came to them by way of the Spirit of God so that it would lead to David, obviously, entering the court. And Saul likes this idea after one of the men in the court suggested. And the man, I love the way the man puts it, he says, this guy is a skilled musician, a warrior, he's prudent, and not to mention good looking. (laughs) I'm not sure what part that fits into the whole equation, but notice they call him a warrior. This is despite his youth, and its reason is because David has already gained a reputation for killing lions and bear that attack his sheep. You find that out in the next chapter, chapter 17. So when they came, apparently, in the middle of the night, or whenever they showed up, he was able to beat them off. A very interesting thing for a young boy. And so we often think of David as a warrior because of what he did later in his life. It started earlier than that. But remember, he was first a shepherd and a musician. A true renaissance man, really, when you think about it. Before there were Renaissance men. Before there was a Renaissance. (laughs) To say nothing of a dark age. And I think of all of these things in terms of providence because it tells me that God gifted David in these ways, knowing ahead of time the work that God would have for David, right? He knew David would be called to lead armies. He knew David would write songs and poems of praise in the Psalms themselves. He knew he would have to lead people with wisdom and patience. So he's gifted him in these things and it's showing up early in his life. So then Saul, after that suggestion, calls for David to leave the flocks and serve in the royal court. And we'll finish out the chapter, verse 20. Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David, his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Actually, it's a magic harp. I'll talk about that more in a minute. (laughs) Sounds more like a Disney movie at this point, doesn't it? So Jesse loads up David and all these items on a donkey. Now, Jesse must have been a man of some means to afford a donkey for transportation. It doesn't sound like much to us today, but a donkey was actually a, a relatively precious item. You didn't see it in most families. It was, it was something that represented a degree of wealth. Now, that doesn't mean that David's family was particularly prominent. In fact, later in chapter 18, we find out that he's not. But it just means that he's sort of upper middle class. And, of course, 
when you get your son called personally by the king to go to the court, you want him to go in style. And so he gives him the donkey and has him ride the donkey into the court. So it's sort of like letting your son borrow the Cadillac for the special date. That's kind of what, what just happened. And when he comes, he comes in a way that bears a lot of resemblance to Christ. Again, not only the fact that he's riding a donkey, but now he's carrying bread and wine. And he has a goat for sacrifice. And you can draw the parallels for yourself. And we're told that Saul takes to David immediately, loves David. And so for a while, their relationship is actually quite good. And for obvious reasons, David's there helping Saul and Saul appreciates it. Here again, you see the work of God in what he's doing. He's binding these two together. No relationship can go anywhere if it starts on day one in a bad way. It's only because they're so close at first that Saul has to take such worry about David later. He says here he loves David. Later in chapter 17, very interesting, there will be a detail we'll hit next time, where Saul has to ask again, who is David's father? Which I think suggests that Saul's mental state becomes quite debilitated as we move forward. Ultimately, that's a part of what destroys their relationship. During this time, though, David forms a strong relationship with Saul and also with Saul's son, Jonathan, who was considerably older than David. I think we sometimes imagine these two to be like two kids that run around together. But they're separated by several decades. And yet still, Jonathan takes a great liking to David, as you'll see. They become very close. In fact, they enter into a covenant in a couple of chapters. And yet, even as they become closer, Saul becomes more suspicious. Finally, you see the grace of God at work in what was mentioned earlier, in the way that God grants Saul relief periodically from the evil spirit whenever David plays music for Saul. And you might ask, was the music the cause of the demon's departure? Did, you know, do demons just hate classical music? And you, you can run them off anytime you start playing. No, what we're concluding, of course, is the Lord is at work here bringing and removing the demon. He's doing it in keeping with what David's doing. All of this is an attempt to give Saul good reason to keep David around, which, of course, it has that effect. He asks that David would stay in the court. It's a measure of grace for Saul as well. And I believe it's also one of God's tendencies in Scripture to use one person to comfort another, even as he's bringing discipline to the other, so that there can be a bond there. He draws members of the body together by placing a need in one that only another can address. And in doing so, he causes us to give regard for one another and for the spirit in each of us and grows us spiritually, teaching us about himself in the process. So that's what he's doing with Saul and David. That's where we stop. We'll come back next time in the story of Goliath which is David's next opportunity to demonstrate God's work in him in chapter 17. And if some consider it the beginning of the end for their good relationship, for it leads to crowds celebrating David at the expense of Saul. And that's not something Saul wants. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for, um, for the grace you show us, even as you showed it to David, and a measure of it to Saul, even in the midst of his disobedience. Thank you, Father, for that grace. Thank you, Father, for the friends and the support we have in and around the body of Christ, each doing what they can to support one another as we have need. And, Lord, forgive us the, the sin we commit as we rebel and forget you. And, Lord, thank you for giving us second chances. I pray, Father, you would uh, continue to guide us with the help of others so that we would stay on the course that you set for us and we would be people who are called to be after your own heart and uh, would grieve sin as much as you do and celebrate holiness as much as you do. We ask these things, Father, and ask you bring us back next week. Let us continue in this study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.